welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker, and with me, I have great panelists, as always, especially the ever-lively Aaron Bush co-founder of Novik, Anil Dasgupta, also very lively, co-founder of First Light Games, and Jonathan Anastas, CEO of Clash TV. How are you guys doing? Uh, enjoying your summer? I'm trapped with a six-year-old up in Big Sur, so this is a, a welcome escape. <laughs> till, till it joins the podcast. <laughs> He's done that before, not this podcast, but uh, yeah. <laughs> in, in early COVID, he was famous for the, uh, the naked Zoom bomb. Nice. A surprise <laughs> guest. Well, uh, well, maybe maybe that'll be a surprise for the YouTube audience here that, that's watching there. <laughs> Just a visual gag only. Cool. Well, uh, rather than do kind of the usual news updates, it was a little bit of a slow news week, so we actually want to switch things up this time and just uh, do a little bit of a half-year review, talk about some things you know that have gone in the past this year and some things we're looking forward to in the future. Uh, just overall kind of thoughts about how things are going, where they could go for the rest of the year, since we're at about the halfway mark. So I figured we just kind of kick things off with uh, just favorite game of the year so far uh, for whoever wants to uh, put their hand up on that one. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you guys surely must know what I'm going to answer for this one. Um, but if you haven't, it's Street Fighter Six. That is, of course, my favorite game. But I have to say, I was very pleasantly surprised by just how good it, it was. Um, I almost chose another Capcom game, which was Resident Evil 4 Remake, which is another great game. But Street Fighter, I've been playing them as a kid. So, you know, I've given you this story before, how not only have I worked on that game, but I also kind of used to skip school to play the game. So I have high expectations for what the game should have. But I think that Capcom really nailed it this time around. The last time that they released um, a Street Fighter, it was really poor. They had sort of lots of issues on launch. This time around, they've done some amazing things that are really good. And I think something that I've noticed, which is very interesting, is that this game has very strong word of mouth. I think it's very well deserved as well. I saw on Twitch just over the weekend, there was like on a, some Japanese VTuber event, and it was actually the number one most streamed game on all of Twitch, including, you know, your regular MOBAs and, and things like this. So that was pretty interesting. I think it's starting to resonate with audience, which it may not have in the past. For me, though, I think the things that I really like about it, one, it's a really well-produced package. So it's not just the fighting game mechanics. That's, to be honest with you, what I care about the most. But actually, now there's this kind of world tour mode, which I think is long overdue, trying to make this kind of game genre more accessible to new people. It's a lot of fun grinding, making your own character, texting Chun-Li like you dreamed of being as a kid and all this kind of stuff. That's pretty funny. Um, but also, for me, actually, what's more interesting than that is they've got this idea called the Battle Hub. And what it is, I don't know if you you've seen this but it's kind of like a virtual metaverse thing of all these arcade machines so you walk in and there's all these people sitting by the machines playing now for me that was literally my life i used to go to this place called the trocadero in central london where they had all these machines it used to be a sega world actually before that and you'd go down you'd see someone playing your favorite game in my case it was third strike you'd put your money on the machine you'd be like okay me and you jonathan we're going let's throw down right now and then you would make friends and enemies this way and the fact that they've done it it, one is that nostalgia trip, which I think is so powerful, but I really just like the social way of doing it. Like it's much easier, you know, you could just facilitate it with a button that custom finds you a game and you can still do that in the game. But this idea of you going around, I think it really shows you what's special about sort of such games are that. I guess it's the same as like having a LAN cafe, but it's almost like having a LAN cafe virtually, even though you're already playing an online game. And I think this is a feature that you might see in a lot of other games going forward. I kind of thought it was genius. So there's so many things I could say about it. There isn't really much negative I could say about it at all, to be honest with you. I think it's really well-deserved. I think it set the gold standard for what fighting game genre can be. And I'm interested to see what other competitors do to see. Because I think, you know, it's really good to have strong competition. Like Mortal Kombat 1, I've, I've seen they've just done their own stress tests. I'm curious to see if they can reach such a high bar. Um because that's what I think it's going to do. I think the overall quality of all fighting games, new tech, and I think the same. I think if they were planning on releasing it, they might be like, whoa, 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 <laughs> we need like three to six months more development just to hit this standard. So that's my favorite game of the year so far. I think it's it's really great. Street Fighter Six by Capcom. Well, you always got multiverses uh, hopefully coming back to in 2024. 
We'll see. Jonathan, you ready to go with yours? Sure. My answer is as equally predictable, I anticipate, which is Call of Duty, Modern Warfare 2. Um, my reason really, and I think it also ties to one of the big trends of the year and the trends of the industry for a long time, is it's familiar, right? Like I've been playing Call of Duty for more than a decade. It executes what it does really well. It doesn't try to be anything more than it really is. One reviewer called it the Fast and Furious of uh, video games, and I can't argue with that, right? Which is like, sometimes it's a seven, sometimes it's a nine, but it's always exactly what you expect it to be. And at my life stage, like, I frankly don't have time to learn, right? And like, get good at something. And by the way, not that I'm good at Call of Duty, but I'm not terrible. If I tried to pick up a new IP at this point, I would be terrible, so the ability to plug into a world that I'm familiar with and a world that I know executed by a AAA studio is like exactly how gaming fits into my life now. And without sort of tipping our hand too much to the next question, I do think Neil's answer and my answer is indicative of why the video game charts look like they look these days, right? In pre preparation of this episode, I looked at like, what are the top selling games per year up to the year to this point? Every single one of the top 10 is... An extension, a franchise, a sequel, a remake. Zero of the top 10 are new IP, right? Because we, discovery's hard, learning new gameplay mechanics is hard, dropping into the familiar of executed well is easy. That said, my runner up, um, well, it's the same thing. I also love Street Fighter VI. You know, I, I, I have the same childhood experiences and I love all that nostalgia, but yet it also makes it very 2023. So while I've probably, you know, that's been 5% of my gaming time, it's been a very enjoyable 5% of my gaming time, and it's made me super excited for Evo this summer. Maybe they could do like a virtual one uh, with, the, with the Battle Hub or something like that as well, like a, a side Evo thing. Uh, I was actually thinking about it as well. I'm like, fully uh, expecting that. They must be right. doing that. that Because yeah. that could be really cool for that's games as well. the first real right? metaverse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where people actually the deliberately go into the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's interesting the timing of that because like uh, COVID really hurt that sort of scene in Japan, like the, the local arcade scene. And to the point where like Sega moved their building out of the main area that where they had it and stuff like that. So maybe it was like timing wise, just kind of needed to have like this virtual version of that sort of in-person get together thing. I don't know. Maybe we got to have a, a, a Novik battle as well. So there's enough fans here. <laughs> oh, we have to. That. We have to. Stream it for, for charity or something. <laughs> that would be fun. Aaron, you got something? Yeah. So, so my game might be predictable to the broader gaming audience, but it's actually somewhat unpredictable if you know me. And it is Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Which I my guess is it's probably going to win Game of the Year um, unless something crazy happens. Um, but um, what's interesting and one of my most opposed gaming views is that I actually did not really like Breath of the Wild um, that much. Um, I couldn't really stand the weapons breaking like every five seconds, which just drove me crazy in that game. I thought some of the like main puzzle points, like the main like campaign parts of the game, they were just kind of boring <laughs> and kind of just like complex and puzzly and not actually as much fun as other people thought. And a lot of people praised the open world of the last game, but personally, like it was just too meandery for me. Like I don't want to spend 50 pointless hours just meandering. Like I got other things to do in life, you know? Um, and so it was surprising to me to put Tears of the Kingdom um, number one, despite not loving the first game. And maybe to some degree, I'm a changed gamer, but this new version seems to have taken the best of the last game, which won Game of the Year in 2017, and made it better. So like the main plot lines and destinations of this game come across as a bit more linear um, and adventure and not just like big mechanical puzzles, although there definitely is that. Um, you get they added all sorts of new abilities that uh, just allow you to do more things as a character. They added crafting uh, of like being able to like build all sorts of crazy contraptions, which honestly, like the more you get into it, like it's genius, <laughs> like game design, in my opinion, of how all of these pieces like work together um, in in this game on the switch where people are just creating anything and everything of all sorts of complexity to just like do
do all sorts of wild things in the game. Um, and it's all, it's really fun. I'm normally not the kind of person that wants to put like hours into crafting, but, um, you know, it's easy and fun enough just to like throw things together and, you know, figure out how to hack the little shrines and figure out how to just move faster through all sorts of things. And I've been enjoying that. Um, and even with the whole breaking weapons thing, which I hated, there's, there's like new mechanics there with fusing and repairs that just, make me feel better. And so I feel like this is a game that like really is, even though the last one won game of the year, this game is even better. Um, and so it's definitely going to serve the people who enjoyed the last game really well. But I think it, it did a good job of like, uh, you know, making it more enjoyable for other people as well. So it makes sense to me that this game performed even bigger and better um, than the last one. Obviously there's more switches out now, so maybe it shouldn't be too, too surprising, but um, but yeah, that was that was my favorite game of the year so far. Uh, my my backup was Resident Evil 4 Remake. So Capcom is, is showing up really strong um, in this showing. Perhaps it's no surprise that, you know, they as a company are firing on all cylinders and, you know, stocks hitting new highs and all of those things, too. Um, but uh, good year for games so far. How about you, Devin? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely noticing the trend here of like uh, part of the reason it's all these franchises, right, is it's them actually building what people wanted and like actually iterating and improving instead of just being like, eh, we're good enough. Right. Like it sounds like everyone kind of made that mistake, like street fighter five before there's been some dead call of duties, maybe breath of the wild didn't do everything it wanted to do. Like everyone just got a chance to like, it's funny too. Cause we had the delay from COVID. You think like actually the games, cause we've had a lot of games kind of come out half baked too. So it's surprising that there's so many that were actually really well refined also come out. So, I mean, that's, that's just not nice to hear, I guess. Uh, my my picks is not really like a franchise, but I also kind of like stuck between a game that didn't actually come out this year and a game that's not out yet. <laughs> so uh, my, my answer was either going to be Marvel Snap, which like I don't know, I, don't, I can't really count it because it, it it didn't come out this year. But like I Man, still lost, feel yeah. like it's it's still kind of my go to. Like uh, it, all these other games, you know, I try out. It's fun for like a little bit, but kind of end up back on my phone at some point every you know time I'm just sitting around idle. On Marvel Snap, but the other the other pick I had was uh, X Defiant, which uh, I've been actually enjoying more through each of the tests. Uh, as I think I've played two or three of the kind of different tests that they've run, uh, and I think it's actually it started reminding me of one game that I did miss quite a bit, which was Ghost Recon Phantoms, and I actually took a lot of elements from that and kind of put that into this, including the characters. And so that just I don't know reminded me of what I was kind of missing from that. And I imagine I I, I almost wonder if there's some of the, that team on there uh i don't know how well it'll do honestly as a as a game just because like it's kind of a crowded genre and stuff like that and uh, i don't know especially with ubisoft but i think it's it's fun and i had a lot a good time with it uh i hope it comes out well but uh yeah there hasn't been a lot of i'm not i'm not usually one for playing lots of narrative long games and and uh playthroughs of street fighter it looked really cool i just haven't got a chance to get into it yet but maybe that'll be on my next list <laughs> but see I, I keep meaning to load it onto steam deck so that i'll actually like play it uh, because on computer I'm too busy working or doing other stuff, so uh, definitely be be interested in that because uh, it seems like I, obviously it's on your guys' list for a reason, and uh, I suck at fighting games, but it looks fun. So definitely, definitely a, a, an interesting year so far uh, for some of these games. So uh, the next yeah, thing we, glad we got to, diverse go answers. Ahead. Glad we yeah, got no, diverse absolutely. answers, and I don't know Except about you guys, Fighter. but <laughs> but the uh, the backlog is a little depressing. It's, um, you know, halfway through the year. And I think there's more games from this half that I still haven't played that I really want to play than I've been able to. And it's like the 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 wave of games is not slowing down. The second half of the, of the year is just as strong and great yet brutal. So going to have to make some tough prioritization decisions. Um, I, but you I know, think it was interesting. I think this year as well, what's interesting is I can't really think of like a real high profile flop so far. I know that that Gollum game was like very meme worthy, but that was never expected to do big sales. What about Redfall? Redfall was was pretty. Was that really high? I don't know how sales went, but. I'll be honest with you. I didn't even hear about that game until I, I I saw people mocking it. So it wasn't yeah, on my okay. radar. Maybe that's a bit harsh. <laughs> Jonathan's laughing. I heard right it's been now, doing but... okay on XCloud. Yeah. I guess where people okay, can play it okay, kind okay. of for freeish. So maybe maybe that's its uh its niche yeah. now. But I don't know. I just thought, thought I'd throw that one out there at least. It's an interesting observation though. Thank you. Right, less flops, which is which is great. 
good to see. Uh, like I said, especially after COVID, like delayed everything, figured we'd see a lot more of those. Like we did see some more delays on some games, though. Like just delayed longer instead. So as far as trends, then uh, when we're on the topic, any trends this year you guys are seeing that that maybe come up frequently in the game industry? Like uh, you you want to uh, start this one, uh, Jonathan? The main trend that I would call out this year is going to be very familiar to Navic listeners, which is this is the year of the transmedia multi-billion dollar gaming franchise, right? This is the year of the game becomes hit TV show. This is the year of the game becomes hit movie. This is the year of the hit movie becomes game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? We already have three billionaires on the charts list, I think, this year, all multi-platform IP. I think it goes to some other trends, which I had hinted at before, which is gaining awareness and gaining traction is increasingly difficult in our short attention span world. And so multi-platform known IP win, right? People are taking fewer risks because the cost of development is such. Everybody's swinging for the fences. And that's led us into a relatively closed ecosystem, very hard to break in. But for those people inside the ecosystem, it has never been more lucrative. And that's the top trend for me this year in gaming. Nice. Anil? Uh, but you know, mine's going to be, I think, uh, the theme of a few answers, actually, that we talk about. For me, the trend's got to be AI in gaming, right? Because every single startup, it's the new buzzword. It's replaced blockchain. You have to have it as part of your company portfolio or manifesto. If you don't, you're not one of the cool kids. No one wants to listen to you. You're not hip anymore. So that's I've been utterly dominated, I feel, by that. You see it in news all the time. There's a lot of places I go to even on social media where it's like you're you're banned from posting about AI because it's just like we get it. Here's some other cool thing that someone has figured out or put in gaming. Um, so I think that's really big. But I think that's going to tie into the next question that you asked. So I'll save some of my thoughts, I think, for that. But without a doubt, I feel like this has been the year of AI and gaming. What's your AI strategy? Well, here's going to be my question for you. Beyond somebody's AI strategy, have you seen an interesting execution of it yet in the marketplace or is it still too early? Right? Because everyone talks about the earliest stuff is just like smarter NPCs, et cetera, which is like super low hanging fruit. Beyond talk and beyond strategies, did anybody here see examples in the marketplace where they're like, oh, I see how this can be big? Well, not really, I guess. I mean, maybe to be a bit of a spoiler and Devin can tell me off, but if I had to ask the answer, what is my most overhyped thing in gaming right now? It would be the same answer, which is AI, right? I definitely think that if you're a games maker, it's certainly eye-opening and it is exciting. It's exciting because all of a sudden a smaller team could make a bigger game that they didn't previously think was possible. And that's great. That means that the cost to make games is cheaper so people can be more creative, they can take bigger risks. It isn't such a closed shop. That's actually good for the industry and good if you're a gamer as well, I think. Why, why is it overhyped? So why do I not think that these things will pass? These what you've just been asking there, Jonathan. One, I haven't really seen anyone utilize it in games in a way that makes me think, oh, wow, because right now all people are using it for is like production pipelines and to speed it up, it's to make that JPEG image that you use in a 2D card game in a gacha event 65,000 times faster and cheaper than you did before. So that's not really like a good thing. Um, it's not something that's like amazing where it's like some freeform Grand Theft Auto 7 thing where every single character's got some dynamics and you know it's the, the one true game that you can play which is where i feel it could get to um but where i think that like you know it why i feel like it's really overhyped is i think it's more on a kind of commercial terms right it's like yes sure if you can do things to make more content or even in this dream case of being able to make you know more games that are sort of like free form and it's not really what the designer necessarily intended but it could go somewhere more kind of systemic design that's cool but it's like the thing about making games and there's a reason why the same people keep making great games over and over again which is one of the previous questions why is the zelda even better than the last one why is call of duty even better than the last one why is street fighter 6 a return to form because it turns out having years of experience and being able to curate an experience and understand what makes a flow is way more important than brute force machine learning and just seeing what pops out the other end, even though there is some use to it. So I really feel that there's sort of two things where people are getting kind of like, you know, overhyping this. One is the fact that 
how, how do you even commercialize of it, right? It's like all of this end product isn't that difficult. And, you know, there's quality over quantity. Just because you can create, you know, 90,000 NPCs using machine learning is not as good as having one NPC that's really amazing that you remember forever that, you know, you play that game for. Um, and yeah, number two, I guess, you know, why I feel it's overhyped is that, yeah, we haven't yet seen that application in games. But I, I will say that I feel that someone will probably utilize and I would love to see, for example, a genre or something that hasn't even existed before and really redefines what games can be. Because I was thinking about this the other day with, with some of uh, the people here in the studio. When's the last time you sort of played something that hadn't been done before and it like really sort of blew your mind as to what it could be? Maybe Extraction Shoot, maybe I'm being a bit generous there, you know, Battle Royales, maybe Auto Battlers, things like this, where, you know, it hasn't been done before and all of a sudden it can create like a paradigm shift. But I'll stop my rambling because I've actually been very cheeky and answered two questions at once there. So. <laughs> I actually had a follow-up question for you. You sort of mentioned two ways it can go, right? You sort of said like, okay, it can give smaller, nimbler places a chance to do an opportunity because it's cheaper. I also sort of see sort of the other end of the spectrum, like game bloat, right? Like the moat becomes, like, it, like it's interesting. AI can either go to the biggest IP where it's just like as if there isn't enough content. For our 60 or $70, we're going to give that much more versus you can also say, hey, the entry level has gone down and somebody nimble can come in and break into something and do something less. Do you, do you, do you sort of weight the chances of both of those things happening equally? Or if you were going to make a bet, do you see like more doors opening or do you see sort of more game bloat for the people who are already sort of spending the most money? I actually think it opens more doors than blow. I, I do appreciate your point about what you're saying. And, you know, if you make a package that's just sort of so amazing that how does anyone else compete? Because the new Call of Duty has absolutely everything. But the thing is, is I feel that those really big titles, they're already in a position where anyone who was already going to buy it will already buy it. It's already like one of those three games that everyone buys every year. So, Yes, whilst you can improve sales somewhat, it's not kind of like dramatic or dynamic. Whereas me personally, something that I absolutely love about gaming is that you can always get these hits out of absolutely nowhere that sometimes don't even make sense. And like Among Us, I remember being such a huge one during COVID where you looked at it and you were like, how is this game like getting so many people playing? And then, don't get me wrong, it's really fun, right? It's essentially werewolf in virtual form, right? But it's like, you know, there was no rhyme or reason. You could get all of us sitting around for ages doing all this analytical forecasting and working out where the next big thing in gaming is. And no one saw that coming. And that's what I love. And so that's why I think it is going to do it because I think this barrier to entry is huge, right? The more shots, basically, the more darts that you can throw at the dartboard, someone's going to hit the bullseye, even if it's not the one that you think about it. And that's kind of what you need is that sometimes the games industry needs these mad hipsters trying this mental stuff that no one else would ever come up with. And that's going to be the next kind of like, you know, five to 10 years of gaming. So look, may maybe it's just because I'm a romantic. You can probably even tell in my voice that I kind of see myself being more on that side, um, even though a lot of the time I too have worn the corporate suit and done that side of gaming. For me, I don't know about you, but I really love it when I play something that not only is really great, but it's something that I haven't even seen before because it's like, you know, it, it just makes you think, oh, wow, this is sort of a creative digital medium and there's all this amazing stuff that you can try. It doesn't just all have to be loot boxes and battle passes and, you know, web trans three transactions, et cetera, et cetera. So that would be my answer there. But I mean, yeah, I could very easily be wrong. <laughs> no, but I, I agree with you. If I go back to the music analog, right, it was like all of a sudden the moat of needing half a million dollars or a million dollars to make a record went away. And you got both of these things, right? You got bloat and you also got, you know, Billie Eilish could make a record with her brother in her basement and it, you know, tops the charts where literally there was a moat that prevented that, right? So I, I have the same romanticism that you do that this, this opens doors and creates opportunities and big ideas are no longer going to be limited to subpar production because of budget is, is the potential. Yes. Aaron. All right. Well, I can I can go ahead. I don't want to break up the the party there. Um, it's an interesting conversation, but I I I actually did not pick AI as my topic. I thought about it, but I was like, ah, I feel like it's the year of AI being headlines, but it still is more more sizzle than steak right now. Um, and so, um, you know, what I decided to go with instead is really just like 
the return to austerity, like the age of corporate fitness, I feel like has like officially come into full swing and it's had big impacts across so many companies around the world, um, across various industries, but the games industry definitely more than most um, so far in 2023. And obviously the past couple of years, 2020, 2021, I guess you could say the market was very out of whack. Money was unsustainably cheap. Growth projections were too high and many teams were just chasing too many projects with too many people. And, you know, when the economy shifted, a bunch of companies had to reshift um, too. money became more expensive, you know, taking on debt, getting venture financing, um, working through your economics of new, new projects just became harder. And so when companies had to go back and, you know, you know, reforecast their budgets, rethink through their roadmaps, um, it meant some hard decisions had to be made. And, you know, many teams and projects had to be streamlined. And this has, this has been going on probably a bit before 2023. But I think 2023 is like when it really has solidified that like, yeah, this is a thing everyone is starting to capitulate to like, sadly, you know, austerity measures need to be taken. We've seen some of the biggest companies like Xbox, EA, Ubisoft, you know, start to to make streamlining measures. But also, we've just seen it on the complete other end of the barbell too with with startups. You know, the world of Web three is <laughs> so much more um, conservative than it was a couple of years ago. Esports is completely resetting how it views, you know, how value is created and just like how valuable these companies even are, and therefore, you know, how they need to be staffed and what their focuses are. Um, and just when venture company or when venture financing titans too, companies uh, just in general have to be smarter about limiting their burn rates um, and and making sure that they're taking proactive measures to um, to be profitable maybe sooner than they they wanted or to at least you know um, you know make sure that they survive over whatever period of time before they can raise money and and around that's maybe that maybe will take place further away than they thought. And so the the age of efficiency of austerity, whatever you want to call it, I think it's just had really profound ripple effects um, that in the end is going to make this industry stronger. The companies are going to come out, you know, 2023, 2024 as just better companies on average than they were two years ago. And even the startups coming in, like you're seeing when money tightens, really only like the best founders who really have um, everything together um, are going to be the ones to kind of pull off, um, you know, not even just raising the money, but like performing well with it. And so just the the quality bar of of talent and people creating new things rises as well. So that that's sort of my my top reflection of of the year is just kind of the return to austerity. Do you think then as a as a follow up to that, that uh, we start to see like maybe some leaner game releases? Or maybe like longer dev cycles where they're trying to like make sure that they they do it right with the the teams they have left and like you know that that we slim the company slimmed down and start looking at their budget more carefully and stuff like what effect does that have on like the next couple of years of games then? I think the answer is yes and no. Um, I think that we the games industry has always seen lean teams come out and and make games that can have various degrees of success and some of it comes from like the modding community, some of it comes from just seed stage teams. Um, and some of it, you know, some might be teams that had bigger fundraising ambitions that didn't quite get what they wanted or had to rethink. And now we're just taking a different approach. All of that is true. But at the same time, we still see these mega fundraisers that happen for, for new games teams that maybe are, you know, X League of Legends, X overwatch i don't know um that uh you know are coming in and raising just crazy amounts of money because the fact is even though funding has tightening there still is a tremendous amount of venture financing and just venture capital um on the sidelines in the games industry that is going to proven teams that i i think some of them probably do not need to have raised as much money as they as they have um and maybe we'll see a slight step back from that compared to what we've seen over the past couple of years. But as long as the the capital is there and it's looking to get deployed, I think we'll still see that as well. So I think we'll see um, more of both, honestly. Cool. Well, hopefully that uh, turns out good, right? Like it's one of those one of those things where it's uh, for our all, all our health, right? 
just have to just have to suffer through it. Hopefully, the people that that get laid off and stuff like that are able to then find good new opportunities as a result of like not having like the easy thing that maybe they were coasting with. Not not that any job in games is ever like easy or coasting, but there are you know people that maybe needed a kick in the pants uh, that might go start their own thing now. We see that say, constantly that's in the in the, um, the game dev world. Where what is it? Yeah, I was going to say that's an interesting question, right? Like in each one of the big tech rollbacks of the last couple decades, right? It's always been like it forces starterdom to some point, right? It forces entrepreneurship. And there's been some case made that despite the pain, you get a new wave of founders and you get a new wave of startups in downtime, despite the fact that it's hard for money to raise. So uh, I, I, again, like the optimism in your point, which is like, hey, there's, you know, there's a, there's a lot less money floating around and there's more people on the sidelines. But I think it's also going to force a bunch of people with big ideas to maybe take a swing where like their corporate job was just comfortable enough where they didn't do it. And so, you know, I, I, I don't wish riff on anybody. I don't wish downsizing on anybody. I've experienced both and it's not always, it's not fun, but opportunity has often come out of it. Well, I look forward to some, some, hopefully some, some huge unexpected, like to, to Nils point, really unexpected swings out of, out of nowhere that it's like, Oh, we didn't see that game coming at all. You know, people making their dream game or their dream ideas. You're saying, Jonathan, where they're like, let me just, you know what, now's the time to just go out and do it. Like, well, you know, I don't have that security, that job anymore. Like, I'm just going to make it now and, and like take the risk. And uh, hopefully we see the fruits of that, right? You never know. Like, sometimes it just doesn't hit. And uh, with all the the franchise uh, stuff you guys were hitting on earlier, there's obviously some competition from the big players to, to worry about. But we've always got, you know, Devolver kind of publishers and stuff like that willing to kind of take weird very strange risks and uh, putting stuff out there. Aaron, you almost made me want to change my answer uh, for, for the question as well to like layoffs and trying to form unions. That's <laughs> kind of the trends. Uh, so a lot of I mean, as a trend. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that was a pretty big trend that I think doesn't really get talked about a lot that I did uh, notice quite a bit, right? Like some of them worked, some of them didn't. Some of them were just talked about a lot, whether that be for like QA people or uh, different levels of game development. Uh, it seemed to be like a hot topic. Not just not just in games, right? It was like across a lot of industries, people trying to form it, like the constant battles with Amazon trying to form that or not, and that sort of thing. But I, it seems like you know labor stuff in general, especially around what happened with minimum wage increases or like COVID stuff and stimulus payments, like labor in general, I think is kind of like it, a a hot topic that has been for a little while that affects games as well as like you know you see writers strikes in Hollywood and everyone was seemed to be asking for a raise over the last like six months or longer where every job was like, yo, we need more money. And there was strikes constantly in every like uh, field. It seemed like, so games are definitely not uh, immune for that, especially with, you know, how much people are crunched and stuff like that in this industry where people probably do deserve more than they're paid a lot of the time for the amount of work put in for some of these games. And uh, I could see why there's pressure then to form unions to try and put some like pressure on actually increasing that. My original answer was going to be AI, but I should have known that would have been <laughs> everyone else's. But you know, it, it was was probably one of the uh, biggest trends. I, I I do think there's a potential for it in games, but like uh, as you guys point out, it's it's a little bit uh, short to start with, right? But that's you know that's how Web three was, you know, like where it's like you know random ideas and like, some stuff sticks, sometimes stuff doesn't. But I do think. Uh, we may realize at some point that trying to use AI stuff in games isn't too different than procedural generation and that we're like, oh, I guess procedural generation was actually easier to get to do what we wanted to instead of trying to convince some semi-sentient AI to do what we want. <laughs> you know, stuff like that where we may not work out just as well as we hoped, but I think there's opportunity there. So, so Devin, I think that's a great point. I think labor and unions has been a huge part of the conversation across technology, across gaming. I think it's a, a nuanced and kind of bifurcated conversation where I think it's very easy to rally public support behind the $15 Amazon warehouse worker, the $12 an hour barista, you know, the $12 an hour fast food worker. I think there's a ton of public support and I think there's a, as there should be. You know, even like the $15 an hour game tester, I think where it gets difficult and uh, somebody much smarter than I coined this phase, this phrase about the last writer strike, which is like nobody has any heart for the rich versus the very rich. Right. Which is where I think if you go at the higher end of this, right, when you talk about the writer strike or game dev studios where, you know, if you have a hit game, 
those mid-level devs, bonuses are incredible, right? Like 1% income that, uh, you know, with a writer strike with, you know, the median, I, I'm not anti-WGA, but like with a median writer making $300,000 a year, it's a little bit tougher to have, you know, public empathy with the American median salary at about 70000 you know, for a picket line full of guys making three, $400,000 a year, right? So it's, it, it's definitely become a trend, but I, you know, but it's taking places across all sectors of the economy that I think are going to have greater and harder chances to garner public support, depending on where they land. Yeah, I was just going to say that I thought my answer was sobering, but if your trend of the year is unionization, <laughs> that's kind of depressing and, and just shows that like something is wrong or just broken somewhere. Um, the, the, like capitalism has failed in, in some way to like take care of people um, or, you know, it's, it's just telling of political climates and things like that. But I was actually going to just kind of segue that to my my answer for the next question, which is what is overhyped, which uh, my answer is just sort of like it's a top down take, which is just like the growth profile of the industry, I feel like might be a little overrated. Um right now, at least in developed markets. And so if you look at the history of games, there have been two main sources of growth. One has been the addition of new platforms that were fortunately very additive to each other. Uh, console was additive to PC, mobile was additive to both of those. And then second, those platforms grew from infancy to maturity. And so right now, I would argue that not only are PC, console, and mobile all now in their mature phases, um, and with mobile is even you know falling a few percent this year, um, but that there isn't a clear next platform that's going to drive growth anytime soon. AR VR still a ways away, and like Web three AI UGC, there's some interesting stuff in there, but none of that really is like the next big like platform, new platform that's going to like unlock the just like gamers who haven't really been gamers before at as tremendous of a scale like the next billion gamers, right? I, I would guess, at least not soon. Um, but the reason I say that is that what's interesting is when the growth profile of the industry slows, which I feel like is something that maybe hasn't been talked enough about because everybody's so used to the charts that just go straight up and to the right. Um, and I don't think you can just necessarily extrapolate what you've seen before, even though there still are exciting corners of the market and you can still come out and make new things that do well and all of that. Um, but to me, what's going to be interesting to see is that if we kind of shift from a blue, more of a blue ocean to more of a, uh, a red ocean where what is new is, you know, more complementary or just unlocks the market to new people versus it actually being more competitive than it has been, even though it always has been competitive to some degree, just because more games, more funding, it's all kind of fighting for the same gamers and the same the same wallet share. Like, what are the ripple effects um, of that? And how do companies respond? <laughs> like, where do startups look? But also, just when industries and companies shift from growing the pie to having to compete for just slices of what is roughly the same pie, um, you start to see more of that clashing. And I would put something like unionization and just kind of like labor movements and such, like those become much more prevalent in those those red oceans, not the blue, the blue oceans where companies are trying to find new ways to create growth and profitability when it's not coming from just the same natural tailwinds. They're trying to, you know, cut costs, get fancy in other ways. And so to me, like what has been overhyped maybe is that growth trajectory, but the ripple effects of what that could mean for the next um, few years um, is going to be interesting to, to see in my view. Am I too bearish on saying that the <laughs> growth of the industry maybe slowing slowing down more than people expect could be overhyped. Kind of needs to be said at some point. I think uh, if you don't say it, like uh, it just get, goes kind of unsaid. Everyone knows, but no one wants to admit it. No one wants to be the first to be like, yeah, maybe it won't go up forever. Uh, but uh, we don't want to think about that now. Tends to be the trend, uh, as you see with each of these like uh, hype waves. But I feel like we've had like a stack of hype waves where like AI was overlapped on Metaverse and Web3. And it's like, 
like we can't even go like three months without like a new one starting. And I feel like that's just like compressing even crazier. And then you throw that on top of what Aaron's saying of like, uh, what should be leaner times. And it's like, what would do we just see all these like waves, like calm down then because there's not hype money to throw around because everyone's having to like tighten their belts. And everyone's like, maybe we should just go back to the things that worked. Like, let's just go fund agriculture again or something <laughs> like so, some way of like, uh, turning it back a little bit, uh, but also giving an opportunity for people to be building stuff sort of in secret where like the next big hype wave just comes out of nowhere because it wasn't like this big publicized hype wave since there wasn't money throwing around everywhere at the time. Be interested to see. I don't know. So the interesting thing about gaming in these hype waves is gaming actually becomes this catch all that always manages to fit most of them into it. Right. Like if you go down like metaverse fits into gaming, right. You know, work from home and like more time online fits into gaming. AI fits into gaming, right? Like, and so, yes, well, gaming's been on this great hype wave. It manages to survive with a little less of the peaks and valleys of these vertical specific stuff, right? Like, crypto specifically is far more bearish than gaming, right? But blockchain still exists in gaming. Metaverse vertically, terrible. You know, the idea of metaverse and gaming or gaming as metaverse still has some. So, so gaming suffers from the hype cycles, but also survives from the hype cycles because it is such an inclusive world that like manages to work in all this technology. So gaming seems to be, at least from a valuation perspective, doing better than any of these vertical hype stuff, right? It seems to like get some of the rub off from these hypes and keeps rising, but it doesn't have the massive reset. In terms of my number one overhyped thing, I'm with Anil. It's AI. It's AI. It's AI. Like, you know, I'm watching a lot of Twitter, which is like, you know, I see a lot of like a company that uses AI is not an AI company. A company that builds something on the top of somebody else's AI is not an AI company. Right. And it's like, I have not seen a deck in gaming or any other category that's crossed my desk that hasn't like put AI front and center. And you sort of get, as you're out of, you know, out raising money, a bit of FOMO, right? Like you feel like it's got to be in there and it makes sense in places like, you know, I'll be transparent. I'm out raising money right now and I've had to figure out some ways to work AI into my pitch. And I've done it in ways that make endemic sense, like taking a company like WSC that takes human editors for like sports highlights and, you know, now AI makes those clips, right? And that's natural and logical. But again, that's use of somebody else's AI. So that's an efficiency story. I'm not going to go out and say that I'm an AI company, but it is ludicrous. And even if you look at what happened to NVIDIA, right? Like, wow, like, did that company deserve that kind of valuation increase? Like, that's not going to end well. So, you know, well, it seems hugely obvious. AI has been my number one hype category. Well, we're on the next one, right? Because I too was saying that overhyped was uh, AI. Are we going to talk about what's underhyped now? Oh uh, yeah, I guess I, I I misinterpreted the topic, and I was I picked games that like specific <laughs> games that were that I thought were overhyped rather than a broad topic. Well, give uh, us yours. What's your overhyped game then? Yeah, so I, like I I wanted to just be a little like counter uh, the trend right now and say and say Battlebit Remastered, which I actually think is a decent game. I just haven't played it a lot yet, but uh, or I was gonna throw out Diablo Four. Just because you know, like it's it's hot take, it's okay, right? That's it's a spicy it's one. like yeah. okay, but I don't think anyone's like, dude, it's like the most amazing Diablo ever. Like, I think people are just like, well, this is better than playing Diablo three for another ten years. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I think I think a lot of people might go back to just two R again, like shortly after this, to be honest. But I, I was also gonna throw out Starfield just because I know Bethesda's track record is just like disappointment city. Like they uh, they they make. St- to the buggiest releases, I think, of, of any company. So that should be fun to watch, that one. But, uh, but that was my sh- very short overhyped list, but I guess not as broad as you guys. Is. So I guess, yeah, we could get into what's underhyped then. If you, if you're <laughs> make ready us for feel that better, Anil. Yeah. <laughs> make us feel better about something. Okay, okay. Well, my underhyped, I think, is a bit niche, but I was going to say, I feel the Steam Deck is actually really underhyped. And I feel not only that, but the kind of concept of high-power handheld gaming in general. Um, I don't know if you've seen like the ROG uh, Asus Ally, which is like another kind of imposter to the crown. So a little bit of research, because that is quite a hot take to kind of do it. So Steam Deck has sold now 3 million units. That's maybe not that exciting to get out of bed for sort of thing. But if you compare that, let's say, to... PS Vita, um, 
lifetime sales that only got to 15 million so you're already kind of you know one fifth of the way there and working your way up but the reason why i feel it's kind of being slept on is because if you think about it it's actually going get a steam deck is pretty difficult right you can't just walk into walmart and pick one off the shelves and, and buy it at the end of the thing you have to sort of really be into it and go in and if you if you look on the steam sales no matter what new game comes out the new game is only ever number two in terms of like top sellers, it's the Steam Deck is number one, which shows that there is this kind of repeated demand and it's kind of word of mouth is going out there. Um, I have one myself and it's funny, when I first got one, I just kind of thought, oh, it's a cool thing, kind of boys toy to sort of show off. But actually it's pretty cool. It, it's pretty good. It's funny you mentioned, you know, Street Fighter Dev and that's actually a good thing. You can take it with you. You can play some games against people at work, whatever, take it back, fits into your pocket, you can plug it in. I think there's something there. Um, is it going to be like a massively industry defining thing? I think it's a little bit early to be making bold statements like that but i think we've talked about it quite a few times on this very corner and i think a lot of us were kind of like well you know this will probably be the one that they test the waters with and see where it'll go but if i had to compare this to any other hardware product that valve has made i feel like this one's a a goer this one's gonna see steam deck 2 steam deck 3 it may take quite a few iterations before it gets there but if you compare that to like their vr headset the controller that they tried to make, some of the various other things they did, those I think are pretty much dead, right? Maybe they might make some more just for the sakes of it. This I think is going somewhere. So underrated, I think Steam Deck. And I think one reason why it's underrated too is I feel like cross-platform gaming is really becoming like a big thing now. Like I think now that we've got the tech to really support it, people are more interested, I think, also the way that our kind of... um, habits change of being able to play a game in different ways during the day in different forms right it's like when you've got to look after your kid you can be playing your game on your steam deck while you're pretending you're looking after them when they go to sleep you can plug it on the tv and get serious you can you know pretend you're doing work like i am doing right now and have my steam deck no no i am generally on the on the call but you could do things that way so yeah for me underrated steam deck Almost sound like you're pitching for Stadia for a minute there as well towards the end, which was like what people got excited about. Like, oh, I got a few minutes here. I can do it on the TV or on, on my phone here or whatever. Like, uh, definitely was a thing. But I, I, one thing that I think doesn't get mentioned enough with the, with the Steam Deck stuff is that goes back to the what they did with the controller that I just want to briefly kind of touch on because I think just everyone moves past it is the haptic trackpad stuff that they did, I think is phenomenal for bringing mouse-based games into a handheld like no one else has like people will do you know thumbsticks and things like that but i think people are kind of sleeping on the fact that they found a way to like somewhat bring over pc centric games that that are off the mouse and keyboard in a way that like feels as natural as they could make it that in a way like no one else has right like that goes back to the controller that kind of pioneered that stuff but obviously like the controller and and the link and all that stuff didn't make it as you pointed out, wasn't their finest technology, but it absolutely was a necessary stepping stone. And I think uh, yeah, you're definitely kind of right. I, I've played like, I, I wouldn't say I've played like a hardcore RTS on a Steam Deck. I think that might be a bit past that you probably would have to plug it into a monitor of mouse and keyboard. But I have played some kind of 4X games using it and the touch screen and the, ad, the you know, in some ways it's actually easier to play on that than the PC even, which is kind of crazy. And those games are very well suited because like, especially if you're on the go and all of a sudden you do have to do something, you can't be fully immersed in the game. So I think you're right to pull it out there, but um, that's not something that I immediately thought of. Yeah, definitely something. But you also reminded me of like uh, another thing, which was that that idea of like uh, being able to switch over to like a handheld for something that you normally play on PC. And I definitely felt like this was uh, one area where Valve, like kind of controlling it for the most part, uh, is is a little troublesome. Where like uh, I Diablo three was ported to Switch eventually, right? And and I enjoyed playing it there because I didn't really have to like sit at my computer for something that's kind of grindy. But then I'm like, oh, Diablo four, like I could make it work on the Steam Deck, but I've ha- I've put battled that uh, on there before and like it causes its own new problems and i've had to like factory restore my steam deck over it and stuff and i'm just like can't be bothered but it makes you think about all those times that like games were like uh we're not going to be on steam we're going to be like on ea origin and then eventually came back to steam and it's like you're kind of glad for a little bit of a monopoly there in one respect when it comes to developing for that platform because it's like games that maybe just don't come to switch or don't come to uh other consoles because like it's more of a pc centric game Anyways, uh, Aaron, you want to go with your uh, underhyped? Yeah, you ready for me to blow your minds? Oh, um, I think what might be most underhyped right now is Ubisoft, which uh, for anyone who has listened, to how much this have they podcast, paid him? How much have they paid him? 
<laughs> I'm probably blowing Ubisoft's mind by saying this because over the past, uh, you know, couple of years on the podcast and in our our newsletter, Novik Digest too. I mean, I feel like we've done a pretty good job of just chronicling some of the the struggles that Ubisoft has faced, right? And there's been a lot: big delays, big game underperformances, struggling live ops, bad acquisitions, culture problems that weird deal of Tencent, and of course, just like the bloat of what Ubisoft is. They still have like twenty thousand employees, which is several thousand more than. EA, Activision, Take-Two. And so, like, something is out of whack there. Um, But here's the thing. As a result of all of that, Ubisoft's stock, and I'll just take a kind of of a financial view right now, it's just been absolutely demolished, right? Like, its price right now is roughly where it was in the year 2000. So that's how far um, of a step back this company has taken, just, like, in terms of, like, public market performance. And... It's not like Ubisoft is sitting still or just like or rolled over. And so the team has a bunch of great franchises. The company has been cutting projects to better refocus some of its efforts. Um, After the last showcase, which we discussed a couple weeks ago, um, the pipeline that the company has is actually looking better than I thought. The new Star Wars Outlaws game kind of came out of nowhere, but actually might move the needle for them. Um, and even something like Avatar looks better than I thought it would. And then, of course, the new Assassin's Creed game is about to come out in a quarter or so. And they're, you know, like really thinking about how to expand that franchise, both to mobile with Tencent and also just whatever that platform, uh, that Infinity platform is going to be, which I think could provide them a better chance to increase and or just like improve live ops on some of these like biggest franchises. And so I think there's opportunity there and they are focused on it. Over the past few months, Ubisoft's employee count has fallen by about a thousand. Um, and I think you know I mentioned kind of the the Ubisoft or the Assassin's Creed related live ops stuff, but I think like there are little signs here and there to say that they are trying to like just be a lot better at live ops than they were at like the 2016 era where the division like lost all of its users pretty quickly or even like the 2019 era where like Ghost Recon Breakpoint just like should have been a hit, but um, didn't have good post-launch content and therefore wasn't. So I think they've learned and are moving on from that. And when I mix all of this up, what I see is a company that sure is not in a great spot, but is actually starting to take steps towards improving its focus, its bloat, and its live ops abilities all around its best franchises. And that's happening while the company's valuation has fallen from what was like seven to eight times sales to now what is 1.5 times sales. And sales using sales is not the best measure of valuation. This is a company that's been burning money lately. But um, I think that I am going to call roughly bottom here, technically bottom a bit earlier this year, but I'm calling a market bottom because I just think there's too much pessimism baked in if anything works and if anything does work and move in a better direction like a game that they release performing really well um, or them taking some austerity measure or spinning something off or like anything i think ubisoft could be a coiled spring where people just stop being so crazy pessimistic about it and they're serious about taking steps the last thing i'll say is that um uh, remember our discussion about Capcom last time? I guess it was about a month ago. And we were like, wow, this company went from a decade ago, went from a long stretch of both critical and financial underperformance. And then management made hard decisions like relocating talent and development, shutting down studios, refocusing on their top brands. And it set the company up for a much bigger and better and positive trajectory for a decade, I think there's a chance Ubisoft could be the next Capcom from from that sense. Um, And the company is making steps. My only thing to say really is that I wish the company was making leaps. Um, And I wrote a Novik Digest piece about this lately. Like if they go from making steps to making leaps, like this, this company could be the next Capcom in terms of going from extreme pessimism and long streaks of underperformance to actually um, having some big wins and starting to outperform everyone's expectations and driving great results. So 
anyways, long, long-winded answer there, but wanted to wanted to make sure I back that up well, um, since it's more of a, a spicy take. But Ubisoft, there you go. I'm going to be a little bit similar to Aaron. Instead of going from like underhyped to undervalued, I actually believe that the death of esports has been called prematurely. And my postulate for that is super huge, global, super engaged audiences that aren't dissipating. They aren't going away. The punishment in this space has been twofold. It's been valuation, which some of the other trends we're talking about today have been, have been taking care of itself and monetization. I don't think we've hit bottom yet because I think we've got a couple quarters left before interest rates start coming back down. I think we've got a couple cu- tough quarters of raise for these companies that need to go back and get money. And I think we've got another couple quarters of tough advertising with sponsorship being about 80% of the revenue. However, at least in North America, 2024 is an election year that always brings ad spend back in a massive way. 2024 is an Olympics year. You know, Paris has opened esports for the Olympics. That's always a big brand spend year. I think valuations would have hit bottom. I don't know if anybody followed this, but in early COVID, Kevin Lyman who was the founder of Warp Tour, went in and bought all these distressed live music venues at like the bottom of COVID. It was an arbitrage play, right? And I think there's a huge opportunity to go raise a grip of cash, buy all the stuff on the bottom, like Q3, Q4 this year, strip out inefficiencies, roll it all up, and make a fuck ton of money in 2024 in esports. That's my hot take. We, I just want to put a, a quick shout out to uh, one of our our great hosts of the pod, Alex. She recently conducted an interview with the Evil Geniuses CEO, Nicole LaPointe Jameson, and it was really good um, because Evil Geniuses, um, Nicole, she came from private equity um, and jumped into um, esports sort of like from the standpoint of evil geniuses being a distressed asset, which I guess kind of to your point, Jonathan, like in many ways you can view a lot of esports today as a distressed asset. And she did a really great job of walking through like her mindset of like, what really are like the challenges today? Like what's not as much as people think. And like, why is there a path towards something that looks distressed having, um, more of a, a like a long-term path out if you're willing to take the long-term view. So um, I thought that was that was an incredible interview. Alex did a good job um, on on that one. So so check that that out if you haven't. I will. I'm That's totally my agree. drive home. That's my drive home. Thank you. I just hope they could figure out the business model because I feel like uh, the 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 approach to esports that was being taken before was probably not the best idea in a lot of ways. But you know maybe there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes as you as you kind of pointing out, Aaron, where people are like, oh yeah, maybe that didn't work. Maybe we can actually figure out a way to make this work now and adjust our expectations accordingly in terms of how we're making money, how we're spending money, maybe not being so kind of crazy uh, and just writing a bubble uh, and actually trying to build sound businesses. As you you mentioned earlier about, you know, this, these periods where people kind of have to go back to making more sound business decisions. Although I felt like, you know, that was maybe something we were thinking after 2000, but I feel like we never really escaped the dot-com bubble. Like it just kind of, you know, deflated a lot and then just kind of built back up again. And so we never really got a good period of like really people tightening things and figuring them out. We've just kind of been riding that tech wave since. So I don't know, maybe now is that time. Maybe now it's not. Maybe we just are like six months from the next hype bubble somehow that uh, we just didn't even see coming. Yeah. And remember, the publishers yeah. don't want Go this ahead. to die, right? Like esports started basically as a marketing right. tool for this IP, right? And then everybody got greedy. And, you know, you've seen sort of give backs on like the really egregious economics on the publisher side to allow this category to survive. And, and to your point, Aaron, about treating it like a distressed asset and going in like a, like a PE person and going in and like renegotiating all your debt and renegotiating all your deals, right? It's like it's going to take people from that sector to go in and renegotiate everything, right? And, and again, publishers and the flywheel have to exist. Publishers want this stuff to be successful, right? The audience is there. The audience isn't going away. Unlike we're reading about so many other categories where the audience is bought, the audience is fake. Like, I don't think anybody's ever said the esports audience is fake, right? So if you have a real engaged audience of a hard to reach valuable demographic supported by like transmedia IP, of which publishers make billions of dollars on, 
there's too much skin in the game to let this ecosystem die. It's kind of funny because you have some games that were like just spending like crazy trying to make it happen when maybe it wasn't going to. Like even Blizzard just really pushing Overwatch probably farther, much farther than it should have gone. And then you have games where like like Smash, where they didn't even want it to be a competitive thing. Like they were actively against it and yet it still survives, right? Like these reluctant ones. And it just goes to show that like you can't just make something in eSport. You can design it for an eSport like Rainbow Six Siege. Like I know they specifically were like, hey, we want this to be an eSport. But it was really like difficult to even try and force that sort of thing. And it had to have been a good game to like even work. Uh, and obviously, like, you know, fighting games is, is and they'll, you know, put are like in a position where there's a lot of competition when the established ones. But I don't know, like, sky's the limit on potential new esports games that maybe don't even see it coming. So, last but not least, everyone, what are you looking forward to uh, or looking like kind of tracking for the rest of the year, anticipating like stalking your prey uh, in the markets here for, for the rest of the, for the next six months, I guess, for this? Uh, Aaron, you want to go first? Yeah, I can start. We can take this one more more rapid fire as we close up. I, I have two quick ones. The first one is boring, and it's just the Microsoft Activision deal, which is crazy that we still don't have an answer. I'm so tired of talking about this, but like, it probably will be the most important decision made in the second half of 2023. And either way, whatever happens, it's going to have big ripple effects. If the deal gets blocked, um, then my guess is that Honestly, Microsoft will probably rethink Xbox and their position in gaming, and that could have big ripple effects at some point. Um, if the deal goes through, I think we'll start to see what really is the impact of scaling the subscription model and having more competition for that um, in the console business. And a lot of the, that conversation will pick up in the second half of 2023, um, for better or worse, because I don't know if all of it is really actually going to be great for the industry, but, but we'll see when we get there based on what happens. So that's one. The second one I, I want to say is just, I think it's important to keep an eye on those who have a lot of capital to deploy. And in particular, I just sort of want to call out one Tencent, which has been mighty quiet lately so far in 2023. But I know they're not just trying to sit idle. And it wouldn't surprise me at some point, maybe in 2023, I don't know the exact timing, they start coming out with some bigger moves, especially to start expanding in more ways globally. Um, and then second, I just have a feeling that um, Savvy Games Group, they're just getting started. They just bought Scopely, but they have so much capital um, to deploy that I don't know what's going to happen in 2023, but like those are probably the big two um, that maybe we don't think about enough, uh, at least because they're not hitting the headlines as much um, as other companies making lots of games. But um, I think I think those could make some big moves and shake up the industry. And uh, lastly, quick plug, I'm actually going to be um, recording and publishing an interview with the Savvy Games CEO, Brian Ward, in July. So stay tuned for that. Really excited to, to see what we can dig into there to get some more perspective on what that, um, what that massive company in the making is going to turn out to be. Nice plug there. Got to get that in. Looking forward to that then. I'm sure it'll be good based off of your prediction. Jonathan, what you're going to be keeping an eye on? I'm going to echo where Aaron was on his last point. Watch Mina. Watch the Saudis. Watch the Qataris. Scopely was the beginning. While it's outside of the scope of this podcast, you saw the live deal, right? You saw the Qataris just bought a piece of the ownership group of the Washington Capitals. The ownership cap table of gaming is going to look very different by the end of Q4, especially if money in the West stays tight. Well, that should be easy to track, right? We just look at one big region, track everything that happens there. No problem. Anil, what you got? For me, it's a game, and that game is Starfield by Bethesda. It's been so long since, you know, the great Todd bestowed us of a game. Um, maybe it's more, you know, morbid curiosity more than anything, but... I think it's great, right? You know, like the, the, no one does open world MMOs, you know, quite well, you know, single player MMOs quite like they do in a brand new setting as well for Bethesda 2. I'm quite a sci-fi fan. I don't think anyone has really executed, I don't know, maybe Mass Effect. So maybe I'm being a bit unfair to say no one's really executing sci-fi, but I'm really intrigued to see what they could do. Um, the sales numbers of Skyrim were absolutely astonishing. You know, you had so many memes bought out of it. So many years they've had to kind of do. So I'm really looking forward to that. I think it'll make a big impact, but how big an impact I'm curious to. Um, 
yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's the the big release I feel of this year still to come. And um, given that, as we said, there haven't been too many flops so far, I'm hoping that this one won't flop either, and it'll be a good one that we enjoy to play. Just keep your your expectations in check. It's just No Man's Sky too, right? Yeah, and, uh, I I do think uh, it'll be interesting to see if 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 the modding support is there, right? Because the modding stuff has been a big part of Bethesda games, especially going to Skyrim towards the end. But they never did a sci-fi game for the, there to be sci-fi assets and and things you could do. Like it's always been kind of fantasy. So like having a new playground, I think for modders alone will be like a, a pretty cool thing if they can make it. You know. Super notebook. I mean, I guess there was the Fallout series. Now that I think about it, there was, I guess, the closest thing there was kitschy '50s stuff mixed with sci-fi elements. So, but yeah, should be good. I, I fingers crossed they can release a game that mostly works. So, well, anyways, thanks, guys. Definitely stuff to be looking forward to. Uh, I just throw mine in real quick, but we don't need to talk about it. Which is just, I'm going to be looking at Web three stuff. Like, please, God, someone release a game that's good uh, this year. So I don't have to wait to 2024. Uh, fingers crossed on that. I do. I do definitely want to see what uh, what Mr. Gabe Layden's got cooking up. If he can manage to kick Digidagaku out, if, if I could even say it, this year would be fantastic. Just to, just to see if it's the world changing, you know, the Web three equivalent of Starfield that he's uh, that he's hoping it will be. So we'll see. On what is one. your most What's your most anticipated Web three game? Is it that one or is it uh, another one? What should we be looking for? I, I mean, I'd love it to be shrapnel. Like, I just don't know if that's going to come out this year. Like, realistically, I think, you know, that's some the of these high quality shooter, ones that, like, right? yeah, the extraction. I mean, I. Uh, Blast Royale Reloaded is clearly <laughs> the answer here. I don't know yeah. why this is even a discussion. If we're talking about second we were talking most about reloaded anticipated yet, game, so. maybe shrapnel. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> right, right. Well, what I'm, I, I wasn't talking about mobile. Obviously, like, if we're going mobile, it's got to be Blast Royale Reloaded. <laughs> no, no question. Anyways, uh, lots of good discussion today. Uh, lots of predictions, I think, and, and hype or not hype. I think uh, it should be a, a very spicy next six months. Uh, maybe not in a good way, maybe maybe in a, a bad way. We'll see. I think we've had a little bit of optimism and a little bit of pessimism today mixed together. So hopefully at least you know half of us are right on something and, and hopefully on the positive side. But <laughs> we're not placing bets today on this. No, no money involved, so we'll just have to see. But anyways, thanks everyone for for tuning in. Thank you guys, panelists, for for bringing some interesting, spicy takes, some different takes and some overlapping takes. I think we definitely see where the trends are uh, in in people's answers. But uh, yeah, great conversation. And thanks everyone for tuning in. Again, make sure to uh, to hit us up at the mailbag, uh, podcast.novic.co if you got any feedback. Uh, if you have a thoughts about even these topics, if you want to share your uh, picks for these Feel free to as well. And uh, of course, you know, you can do that in YouTube comments thing. Awesome. You know, that sort of engagement as well. If, if you enjoy that sort of thing. But uh, anyways, we will see you all next week and have a great weekend until then. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.